Welcome to Legalese. At Legalese, we offer you a diverse and civil perspective on current issues affecting America and beyond, inviting the smartest minds from Arizona and the country to politely discuss the things that matter in a Socratic manner. Our intent is to improve discourse and information dissemination in a time of hyper-partisanship and poor critical thinking. No one will be called names. No one's beliefs will be mocked. This is our response to recent and biased news content. We are here simply to deliver balanced and informative discussions about legal matters that affect us all, from yours truly, soon-to-be lawyers and current lawyers and journalists united. We offer you all of this without convoluted legalese, which is a word for fancy lawyer talk. We hope you enjoy the show. This is Amina Keshton Kamal, and you're listening to Legal Ease Podcast in partnership with ASU Law's Academy for Justice. This episode is on Maricopa County Attorney Election in Arizona, and this episode's host is Eric Luna. Eric Luna is the Amelia D. Lewis Professor of Constitutional and Criminal Law at ASU's Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law. He is also the faculty director of the Academy for Justice, a diverse team of scholars and experts committed to the study and improvement of criminal justice in America. This is one of two episodes where we interview each of the Maricopa County attorney candidates on their stances on criminal justice reform topics. In this episode, we interview Alistair Adele. Eric, I'll be handing this over to you now to introduce our guest today, followed with questions. Thank you, Amina. It is my pleasure to introduce the 2020 Republican candidate for Maricopa County attorney, Alistair Adele. After receiving her law degree from Arizona State University, Ms. Adele began her legal career at the Maricopa County Attorney's Office, where she prosecuted felony cases and advocated for victims' rights. Ms. Adele has served in a number of leadership positions in Arizona State Government, including most recently her appointment as Maricopa County Attorney by the County Board of Supervisors. Alistair Adele, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Why did you want to become a prosecutor? What, what in your background and experience led you to pursue the position of county attorney? Well, I went to law school to be a prosecutor because I feel that public service is a calling and that for somebody that wants to be a government public servant, there's no more job that has more meaning and purpose than being a prosecutor because prosecutors wield great power at the same time. It is our job to protect not just victims' rights, but the rights of the accused as well. The United States is currently engaged in a national reckoning on race and criminal justice. Many citizens believe that the criminal justice system is biased against people of color, that they are arrested more frequently than their white counterparts, that once arrested, they are prosecuted more frequently, and that once convicted, they are sentenced more harshly. What steps will your office take to assess racial disparities in the criminal justice system and to address the concerns of minority communities? We cannot accept a justice system that is biased against people of color, whether they are the victims or the accused. Where these beliefs are based on practices and structure, there must be reforms. This is the work of all of us together and studying the problems, getting data and having conversations. And that is why I have created two advisory boards. One is a community advisory board made up of faith-based leaders, community activists, those that want to see our criminal justice system be better, to not necessarily drive policy, but let's have conversations about how we can do better and be better. 
because we might not always agree, but we have to have the conversations, especially in our climate right now. And the other thing I will add is that for the first time, I have established a forward-facing, to the public, data dashboard where people can see the types of, or excuse me, the number of cases that are coming into the county attorney's office and how they're being resolved. And that transparency is something that I am committed to because it is part of a broader communication about the issue that you're talking about. In the wake of, of the death of George Floyd and others, public protests have focused on the police use of force, particularly lethal force. How would you instruct your office to handle potential prosecutions of law enforcement officers for conduct in the line of duty, such as the unlawful use of lethal force? Does your approach to prosecuting law enforcement officers provide any role for community member input, either before or after prosecution decisions are made? Make no mistake, George Floyd was murdered, and it was a tragedy. Before his tragic death, I took steps when I took office in October of 2019 to, again, my commitment to transparency, that we were going to look at how we look at officer-involved shootings and prosecuting officers. If it's an officer or a civilian, it doesn't matter. If they commit a crime, they will be prosecuted. And to that end, I will tell you two things. One, we have prosecuted an officer for an officer-involved shooting. And in, again, my commitment to transparency, we have added civilian members to our critical incident review team. And that group, they review what the police agencies send to us on officer-involved shootings to make sure that we are doing the right things, that there is no criminal conduct, but we get that information from the police department. And then now we have four civilian members. We have experienced prosecutors. We have experienced investigators and civilians on the, the committee that make a recommendation to me to be charged. But make no mistake, whomever commits a crime, officer or civilian, will be held accountable. Recent news coverage has highlighted statewide problems in the disclosure of past misconduct by law enforcement officers on so-called Brady lists. The listed officers have documented integrity concerns such as past crimes, dishonesty on the job, or other misconduct. Supporters of these lists argue that the information is critical in the many instances where police testimony underpins the prosecution's case. Opponents claim that the lists become a sort of scarlet letter for officers who don't have the means to clear their names. What is your position on Brady lists? What will your office do to ensure these lists are up to date and shared with other counties and the relevant information is made available to defense counsel? I can assure you that our office is up to date and here's why. We get the information from the agencies and we put them on our internal Maricopa County only Brady list and that is a disclosure issue, meaning our lawyers, when they see integrity issues, send that off to the judge and a defense attorney is notified and a judge makes the decision if something should be disclosed. But also, more importantly to your question, when I first started, I went to my first meeting at the Arizona Prosecuting Attorneys Advisory Council where we discussed this issue that the public needs to know. 
At the same time, we don't want to jeopardize um, someone's employment rights or disparage them, liable, slander, all the rest of it. However, we will move forward. My understanding is October 1st, and I am supportive of this, that APAC is going to have a front-facing list where somebody can go in there and search for someone's name who is an officer to see because they do need to be held accountable. If there's witness credibility issues, we will deal with it on our end on the trial perspective as well. But I am committed to transparency and I am not blocking these efforts. There has been a movement to eliminate or at least limit cash bail based on concerns that people may remain in jail before trial, not because of the risk they pose, but because they cannot pay bail. Relatedly, some systems have turned to risk assessment tools to help courts determine those who can be released without threatening public safety or compromising efforts to prosecute cases. What is your position on these and other changes to bail? Well, this is actually, Eric, one of my favorite questions I get because before I went to law school at ASU, I actually worked for court administration in pretrial services at the time, it, now it's under adult probation, where we worked with those in initial parents court and with the, at the time, bond matrix. We do not have bail in Arizona, we have bond. And so I wanna clear that up, but also I will tell you, I understand and respect that bond is not punitive. We do not want a debtor's jail. Those people that are, have been arrested that do not pose a risk to society, their victims, and have some guarantee that they're going to appear, that assessment that's given by the judge, by the way, should ensure their appearance in court. And that's it. It should not be punitive. Our lawyers rarely make a recommendation for cash bail. Now, there are some exceptions. There are some sex offenders who have violated children that should not get bond. At the same time, we want little disruption to those who want to do better and be better. And that is the directive from my office. And we work collaboratively with the courts. But as a reminder to everyone, judges impose bond, not the prosecutors. As is true with other areas of, of, of American life, the COVID-19 pandemic has had an impact on the criminal justice system. Among other things, the pandemic has raised concerns about the health and safety of those in jails and prisons. Given the incidence of COVID-19 cases in Arizona detention facilities, what is your view on the release of pretrial detainees and inmates who are particularly vulnerable to the disease? We have been working collaboratively with the indigent defense firms and the private defense bar to make sure that we can identify those people that are in custody in the jail that can either have their release conditions modified or can be released unconditionally because we don't want to pursue the expansion of a pandemic. So we've been working collaboratively with our partners. Ultimately, though, it's the judge's decision. And so the defense bar and our office can come to the, def to the court. It might get denied. But we have gone quite literally case by case looking and seeing, you know, this person may have been able to been released by now because they were going to take a plea agreement to probation and they should be out. Or this person is a low risk offender 
and let's modify their release conditions. So we are doing that on a case-by-case basis because it's the right thing to do. I will also add that I'm proud to say that for the first time ever, our county has a home detention program. Many cities and other counties and cities and other counties have a home detention program for low-level offenders such as DUI offenders. So they don't have to spend that time in jail. They can be at their home with an ankle monitor or whatever it is and be at work with little disruption to employment, schooling, and family. And ultimately, that helps our economy and reduces recidivism. Jurisdictions across the nation continue to deliberate on the legal status of marijuana. This November, recreational marijuana will be on the ballot in Arizona. What is your position on the legalization of recreational marijuana? Alternatively, do you support or oppose decriminalizing low-level drug offenses or reducing nonviolent drug crimes from felonies to misdemeanors? I'm going to answer your questions in the reverse. I have implemented plenty new plea policies, which I hope that everybody can familiarize themselves with it because I have now made them public, um, which has never happened before. If somebody is under the current laws, arrested for uh, marijuana, and they have a medical marijuana card, their case is going to be dismissed. First-time offenders, most second offenders for drug offenses, we are putting them into a very robust diversion program where we have eliminated a financial barrier to get treatment because we are looking at the offender, not the offense. Because previously, the county attorney's office charged a $630 fee, upwards of $1,200, just to be in diversion, to have your charges dismissed if you get treatment. Now, as for the ballot initiative, what the voters decide is what a county attorney or any law enforcement person, any elected official will honor. So whatever the voters decide, whatever laws are on the books, I will enforce. You mentioned the issue of plea bargaining. Let's turn to that for a second. Plea bargains typically involve the prosecution agreeing to drop some charges or to support a lesser sentence in return for the defendant pleading guilty. In most legal systems today, nine out of every 10 cases ending in a conviction are the result of plea bargaining. Among others, Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy has argued that plea bargaining is not some adjunct to the criminal justice system. It is the criminal justice system. Do you believe the prevalence of plea bargaining is a problem for today's criminal justice systems? How will you ensure that plea bargaining in your office is fair and justified? Well, plea bargaining is not something that should be good or bad. It's a fact. This happens, and frankly, for a good reason. And under my leadership and administration, we have amended our plea policy guidelines. They're not policies, guidelines, so that our lawyers can make decisions to treat similarly situated people equally, at the same time, protect victims' rights, and hold the worst of the worst accountable. But to tax our system, taking all of those cases to trial would be detrimental to everyone involved, not just taxpayers, not just to our court system, but we all work collaboratively. I can tell you that under my administration, I talk regularly with the defense bar. We talk about cases. We talk about the overall system. We talk with the courts 
especially now during the pandemic. And again, this is about doing the right things for the right reasons every single time. And what I have established in our culture is that just because you can doesn't mean you should. And we have a tremendous amount, 1,000 employees, more than 375 attorneys that are doing the right things for the right reasons. One topic that is often discussed in conversations about criminal justice reform is mandatory minimum sentencing. A mandatory minimum eliminates judicial discretion to impose a sentence below the minimum term set by statute. Many criticize mandatory minimum sentencing as rigid and inflexible, while others highlight the uniformity it produces. What is your position on mandatory minimum sentencing laws? Do you have concerns about the way these laws allocate the discretion between prosecutors, judges, and lawmakers? Um, what are your thoughts on adopting something like a safety valve provision? which provides judges discretion to reduce a sentence below a mandatory minimum under specified circumstances. Well, you use the term specified circumstances. I think it's also specified crimes. And so when we revamped all of our plea guideline policies, we gave more discretion to our lawyers and to the judges. So the judges can be judges. Our sentencing statutes and truth in sentencing was uh, enacted in 1994. We've had some subsequent things in place, for instance, with um, uh, the methamphetamine that happened, the, the pandemic, if you will, with methamphetamine in our state that happened a few years ago. But I want to talk about meaningful reforms. I am privileged to have had conversations with um, Reginald Boulding, Senator Navarrete, and other stakeholders about how we can look at meaningful sentencing reform. Can we look at meaningful expungement laws and smart justice? Because again, this is about Arizona being safe and a great place to live, which it is. And I will also tell you that as a personal experience, I understand the disparities in the sentencing laws. So I am open to discussions. Under current sentencing laws in Arizona, almost all people in prison must serve at least 85% of their sentences. Do you support an expansion of so-called earned release credits, which might reduce an inmate's sentence based on good behavior in prison and success in pro-social programs? Well, again, we're referring to truth in sentencing and 85%. And there are some crimes out there, they have to serve their sentence and the victims deserve the dignity and integrity of that sentence that a judge imposes or a plea agreement imposes. However, those that want to do better and be better, like I've said, deserve that opportunity. The, the state needs to be able to fund those opportunities, though, so that we can have recidivism reduction once those people are released from prison and they're not institutionalized and reoffending and breaking into your house or my car. So we do need to look at a holistic approach from it. Um, as far as arm release credits, I think there are certain offenses that we can absolutely have those conversations on. And as far as in-custody programs, I can tell you, I have a, a dear friend of mine. Her daughter, she became addicted to drugs. She pawned a friend's ring and got charged with trafficking stolen property. And she got sentenced to prison. Where in reality, she just needed treatment but she wasn't able to get that under our sentencing laws. So with that in mind, I wanna take a, a look at all this, have conversations, 
do what's best for our community, look at treatment first, but at the same time, we have to hold people accountable and keep victims safe and our public safe. You mentioned expungement, and I'd like to ask a question about that. Uh, recent times have seen a, a growing interest in the reentry of former inmates back into society. This process is sometimes blocked by a defendant's felony record, which shows up on background checks and can impede a former inmate's prospects for employment or ability to obtain housing. With no expungement law in Arizona, would you support legislation that would allow people to clear their felony records, perhaps when the underlying offenses are nonviolent? Well, I would need to see the legislation first to look at the language. I'm open to the conversation because I do understand that the felony conviction is a barrier to getting housing and employment. I understand that. And we do not have expungement here in Arizona. Um, so I'm open to the discussion, but I would like to see the legislation first. Many criminal justice systems are filled with defendants suffering from substance abuse uh, and mental health disorders, which are often connected to the underlying charges. What can the county attorney's office do to deal with this pervasive problem of criminal justice? Well, I thank you for this question. I'm going to give you a long answer because I am keenly aware that many of the crimes we see are committed with underlying conditions, like you said, mental health, drug addiction. And that is why we created a robust diversion program based on evidence-based practices to assess people and their criminogenic needs, whether it's antisocial behavior, whether it is um, mental illness, whether it is drug addiction. We have a specific program for the seriously mentally ill that have been diagnosed as seriously mentally ill. And I'm proud to say we are now part, under my leadership, when I have been there, now part of a countywide initiative to look at mental health. How can we get to these people in advance? How can we stop this and reduce recidivism? So I am there in my job promoting these to our attorneys and everyone is on board. This is not a novel concept with the exception that we are now on board and we are there for our community because our offices are out there and they're having to be social workers. We're working with them. We talk about collaboration and training. We work with community groups and nonprofits to get people the services that they need. And diversion is the key to that, especially with the populations that you are talking about. Arizona law contains a, a variety of protections for the victims of crime. How will your office balance the concerns of crime victims with the demand to prosecute cases in service of the public interest? So Arizona has been leading the way um, nationally with victims of crimes rights. And crime victims' rights in Arizona are not equal with the defendant or suspect's rights. It does mean that they can have access to information, their voice can be heard, they can be present at hearings. And I'm proud to say that our office is leading the way in that. We have three, almost four victim services dogs. So when the children who have been sexually abused have to go into court and face their accusers, they can have a dog there for comfort. At the same time, with public scrutiny, with public information, that will not be compromised under my administration because everyone has a right to know under public information records what is going on. We will protect our victims 
under our constitutional and statutes. At the same time, we will also honor our rights and our obligation to make sure that the public has information about what's going on with the case. And as a prosecutor, as a member of the State Bar Ethics Committee, which I unfortunately had to resign from when I came to this committee just because of my job, prosecutors' jobs, we protect not just the victims, but the due process rights of defendants and the public because prosecutors wield great authority and we are there to protect everyone's right. And that is our obligation to society and the community. Let me circle back to the topic we began with. Uh, the law enforcement response to nationwide protests has raised questions about the appropriateness of arrests and prosecutions for offenses like disorderly conduct, interfering with a police officer, trespassing, and unlawful assembly. How would your office approach such cases, given the need to balance free speech rights and expressions of community sentiment with the need to maintain order and minimize the potential for violence or property damage? I absolutely support peaceful protests. That is our first amendment right. That, that is something this country was built upon. But when people cross the line into criminal conduct, breaking into Scottsdale Mall, looting facilities there and businesses, if people cross the line and have criminal conduct, they will be held accountable. At the same time, I welcome the discussion. We as a country have to have these discussions, otherwise we will be divided and not united. So there is a line there. We are prosecuting those who have crossed the line to criminal conduct. Some of those um, that were submitted to us uh, by the police, we turned down, meaning we said no charges. Some of those that came in from police, we said, this is not a felony. And we sent it to the cities to decide is this criminal conduct on a misdemeanor level? But if there is criminal conduct on a felony level, we will hold people accountable. At the same time, I support peaceful protests, peaceful speech, because that is what our country is built on. Do you support the intervention of federal law enforcement in response to protests? Or is this an area exclusively or at least predominantly for state law enforcement, including potential prosecutions by the county attorney's office? Federal law enforcement is charged with protecting federal buildings, obviously, but protests, whether it's at the federal court, a federal building, things like that. If the governor decides that federal law enforcement or the National Guard needs to come in, that, that's on them. I trust and rely on our local police agencies to do their jobs because they are very competent. They know what they're doing. They know the communities that they live in. They know the people that live there. And that provides huge value because they know what they're getting into. So it's not up to me to decide that question. Let me turn to my colleague, Amina, who has a, a question for you. So you made history as the first woman to hold the position of Maricopa County Attorney. And this was also a proud moment for ASU because you're an ASU law grad. Um, I'm wondering if you can comment on that big moment and also how that relates back to your, your studies at ASU Law. Yep, that's it. Okay, Mina, thank you for the question. I love it. So I started law school when we were back at the old Tempe location at Armstrong Hall in 2001. And 9-11 happened. 
I was due to start my civil procedure class with Professor Daubert. And I went in and we were all in shock. Nobody knew what to do. And we were all struggling. We were entering a new normal. And again, I went to law school to be a prosecutor. So for my generation that went through, it was a different experience. But I will tell you that ASU, the support and the guidance that I got was uncomparable. One thing that the dean at the time said, your reputation starts now because you never know. The person sitting next to you could be your supervisor. The person sitting next to you, you could be trying a case against them. And that's absolutely true. I also did all of my internships through ASU. I did the prosecution clinic through Hugo Zettler. I worked with Professor Barnes to establish a scholarship for Hugo Zettler. ASU has my heart. I will tell you, I know it's tough right now for all of our law student grads, ASU. But our dean, Doug Sylvester, has brought our law school to a new level. And I can't be more proud and honored to be an alum, but also to tout his accomplishments and the accomplishments of the staff. I was honored before I became county attorney. I um, was on the ASU Public Service Academy Advisory Board teaching our next generation service corps, the undergrads, about cross-sector collaborations. And a lot of those folks want to be law students, and I hope they do, because I believe in the generation that is coming up, and we have to empower them. So I am honored to be an ASU grad. And I will tell you, like I said before, even though I look better in blue and red as my undergrad on the monitor, I do know how to fear the fork sign, and I am there, and I want to empower our ASU grads. They're downtown a lot now. Uh, we have internship opportunities, and we are there for you because we are one community, and we are here for Maricopa and Arizona. So I thank you so much for the time. We've reached the end of our time today, so I want to thank Alistair Adele for joining us today. Good luck in the upcoming election. Thank you. I also want to thank the listeners of this podcast. If you want to learn more about the Academy for Justice, our research, and our events and activities, please check us out on our website and follow us on social media. And this episode can be streamed on Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and on Legally's podcast website at legallyspodcast.com. Thank you so much, Alistair, for being here today. Thank you. Thank you.